in case you haven't met him, I want to introduce to you a good friend, Daniel Zimmerman. Uh, Daniel and his wife, Kara, and their children attend Church of the Incarnation in Harrisonburg and are very involved in the congregation there. Daniel helps with uh, music and then leads a small group, and I'm sure there are many other things. Uh, Daniel is going to be come, uh, coming to preach this morning. It's always fun for me. I, I miss Daniel and his family, and so when I think I would love to be able to see him, I think I'll have him come preach for me, and I'll get to see him, and I'll also get to hear him preach. So Daniel is a Ph.D. candidate at uh, UVA in literature, and um, I always he, he's just an amazing person. And so thank you, Daniel, for coming to be here and to share God's word with us. We're glad, we're glad that you're with us. I'm especially glad. Good morning. Merry Christmas. What Kevin didn't tell you is the last time I was here, he gave me the passage where Jacob is breeding these goats uh, surreptitiously and deceiving his father-in-law. So this is a better, a better draw this time. Um, um, do, do you know the, the movie Home Alone? Uh, if I, is that a cultural reference? Uh, so I, I thought I should begin with Merry Christmas, you filthy animals, but that just felt like way below the belt. Um, actually, uh, by referencing that, I'm trying to prove an important point, uh, which is that um, when you say anything, um, many words have already said, been said before you. Um, and some of those words have become so famous that it's impossible for you to say them any longer without erecting this whole host of expectations on the part of your listener. Um, let me show you what I mean. Uh, uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, uh, see, see, you already know. I've fallen asleep in every Star Wars I've ever watched. Um, and I know that after that, I'm gonna get little dyslexic green wise men and aerodynamically suspect spaceships. And I know that the empire can never win. And I know that there's this thing that the force and you have to learn to control it. So it works like this with all literature. Um, now in a Jewish cultural setting, uh, there were some words that were the most famous words and they belonged to the most famous poem and it was the beginning of the Torah. Uh, so when John, the apostle, uh, is a Jewish man and he starts his gospel off with certain words, uh, he knows the Bible really well and he's making a very important point by saying this. Actually, he's making two very important points. Um, uh, first point is that Yahweh is back at it again. Um, if you know that story, you know that Yahweh had a project that he started. Um, and in that original story, he's got two movements that he's doing. The first half of the story, he's taking his words and he's making matter. And he's building, he's forming that matter into a container. M most scholars think that he's Yahweh is talking as if he's building a house. And then the second half of that story, he's taking that house and he's populating it. He's filling it up. He's building a temple where he will be worshipped and then he's filling it with worshipers. Now, the, the trick is that these worshipers' job is to mimic Yahweh. Their job is to rule the temple and its inhabitants with justice and wisdom. And they're supposed to copy Yahweh because do you remember the task that they're given? Their job is to speak reality into existence. They're supposed to name the animals. Adam said giraffe, and it was so, right? Like that's, that's their job. Um, so this whole act of creation, the, the, the writer 
of Genesis depicts it as if it's this glorious picture that, that the king is invading the darkness and chaos with his light and life. And he's doing it with his word. More on that in just a second. But the second point that John is making is way more subtle. And, and if you want to pick up on it, you have to read the Bible left to right. You have to read it like it's a novel. Um, because if you do it that way, you're going to catch when a couple of, of things show up. One is a character that shows up that's really weird. And the other is a particular phrase. So we're going to go through those this morning. <coughs> Let's start with the character. If, if there's one thing that the writers of the Old Testament are fiercely dogmatic about, it's that there's one God. Um, and that God is the only one who deserves worship, and all the other gods are imposters. Um, the Jews put this uh, in, in this famous piece of, uh, of text they called the Shema. Uh, it, it's, it's in Deuteronomy is, is where we, we call it. It's hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Worship the Lord and him only. Um, and the writers often insist that Yahweh's glory is so unapproachable that if you even look on his face, it will kill you. Remember, this is what Moses, Moses hides in the rock and God covers him with my hands. He says, you can't see me and live. Um, there's that other fellow named Uzzah, and he, he reaches out accidentally to, to touch the Ark of the Covenant to prevent it from falling over, and it kills him like that. Nevertheless, in spite of the fact that God is unapproachable, that you can't see him and live, there's all these weird moments in the Old Testament where there's another couple of shadowy figures that are present with God, and they're doing the same thing as God. So like in, in, in the creation story, there's this character named the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, and he, he hovers over the waters, and he calls life out of this darkness. It's, it's real weird. Whatever, whoever he is, he's real shadowy. But he shows up at other moments in the Old Testament too, and, and he does this thing that God does. He convicts people of sin. He encourages people who are despondent, and, it, and, it's, and you just have to follow it. And, and you should ask the question, well, who, is this, who or what is the Spirit of God? But there's another character that shows up, and that's the one we're going to spend our time on this morning. And this guy is called the Angel of Yahweh. And it's real weird when he shows up. Uh, he shows up and he does divine things. For example, um, when Hagar, who is Abraham's mistress, gets kicked out of the camp, and basically abandoned in the desert to die, this angel of Yahweh shows up. And instead of saying that he has a message from God, he's an angel, he's a messenger, right? He doesn't say he has a message from God. He talks as if he is God. The, the narrator collapses these two people together. Listen, this is Genesis 21. Uh, she's scared that her, her, her son is going to die of thirst in the desert. And so it says, Genesis 21, 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes, and then she went and sat down opposite to him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite to him, she lifted up her voice and wept, and God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, God has heard the voice of the boy. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, I'm going to make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of, well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave to the boy. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. Which, which is it? Is it the angel of Yahweh, or is it Yahweh? It, the narrator's fuzzy. The same sort of thing happens when Moses is out in the desert, and he looks at the burning bush. This is in Exodus 3. Uh, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. 
And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. And Moses looked and beheld, and the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. I thought it was the angel. This is puzzling. Who is this? And this character says, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off for the place that you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look on God. And so you're supposed to ask, which is it? Is Yahweh unapproachable? Will, will looking on him really kill you? Yes, but it's a paradox. It's, it's puzzling. Because there are some moments where God shows up in a way that he can make himself visible and concrete to people and it won't destroy them. This angel of Yahweh is distinct from Yahweh, but also Yahweh. So when you finish the Old Testament, you're supposed to wonder, what, what's going on with that guy? What's going to happen with that loose thread? But that's the character. Now let's go back and get this phrase that shows up in the Old Testament. If you're reading the Bible left to right, you're going to find that a certain phrase shows up across the books, which is already weird because these books were composed in different centuries. So the, the characters didn't get together, or the authors didn't get together and figure out how they're going to use this phrase. It's an idiom. And it occurs 101 times in the Old Testament, if you're reading the ESV. And it shows up when God's speaking to a patriarch, a king, or a prophet. Do you know what it is? It's the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, Moses, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. It starts in Genesis 15. W look with me in Genesis 15. This is when God comes to talk to Abraham. Genesis 15, verses 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, I'm your very great reward. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said to him, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, at this moment, Abraham is really frustrated at God because God hasn't ponied up on all the promises he said he would do. God said he would give him descendants and a land and make his family a blessing to the earth. And years had gone by and no kid had been born, no land had materialized, and it looked a whole lot like God had just forgotten what was going on. And in that moment of confusion and doubt, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham and says, I meant it. I meant what I said. I will bring a Messiah through your offspring. I will bring light into this darkness. And later, after Israel becomes a great nation, the word of the Lord comes to a bunch of people about the temple. It comes to this prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7 to inform David that David's not going to be allowed to build the temple, but his son Solomon will be. And so David should get the materials together. This is what 2 Samuel says. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest, from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. 
But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I was brought up out of Egypt by the people of Israel. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places I have moved with Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Therefore, say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies before you, and I'll make you a great name like the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And any violent men will not afflict them anymore as formerly. From the time I appointed the judges over Israel, I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. So the Lord returns, the word of the Lord returns later to Solomon and says, let's go, start the construction. And to reiterate these promises. And so what you have to see is that the word of the Lord comes to his people because Yahweh wants to dwell there in a temple. And the last time that this phrase tends to show up, the word of the Lord came to it shows up in the prophets, all this stuff we've been reading in Advent, where Israel hasn't lived up to their end of the bargain. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and it tells these prophets to communicate two messages. The first is to accuse Israel of idolatry and to accuse its leaders of corruption. See, the, 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 the people that owned all the land got in bed with uh, the priests and the judges so that they wouldn't practice the year of Jubilee. And they wouldn't give the stuff back to the poor people. And so these robber barons just kept amassing land. And, and God hated it. And that this is what Micah says about these leaders. Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin off my people, who eat the flesh and strip their skin and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat for the pan? They will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. And at that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil that they have done. The word of the Lord tells Micah, you warn these people that because of their flagrant disobedience, because they will not obey Yahweh, they are going to receive the same punishment that Adam and Eve get. Exile, expulsion from the land, get out. And we know from history how this went down. The Assyrian Empire came in and obliterated the northern tribes of Israel. This is, these are all the folks that Jonah was so scared of that he ran the other direction because they had a, a real habit of impaling people. And uh, the, the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they got wiped out by the Babylonians. And that culminated by the Babylonians desecrating and destroying the temple and the glory of God left the temple. But the, this, as crushing as this news is, the word of the Lord then tells the prophets, tell the people that after the exile, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to gather them from the nations that I've cast them off to, and I'm going to build a temple, and we will worship there together. See, this is the context you have to shove way back in your head if you want to read John correctly. This is what Jeremiah says in chapter 33. Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it. The Lord is his name. Call to me. And I will answer you, and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, that are coming to, then to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men, 
but I will strike in my anger and wrath, for I have hidden them from the city. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance and prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel. I will rebuild them as if they were at first. But then after the prophets talked, and after the people finally got a chance to rebuild the temple, God went radio silent for 400 years. The speaking God stopped talking. And Israel just sat there, this disenfranchised, oppressed nation. They were kicked around from captor to captor. And they, all they had was the promise that our hymn writer has captured, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. Do you know how many times this phrase, the word of the Lord, came to such and such shows up in the New Testament? Three words, just like the angel of the Lord. See, this is what's going on in John's gospel. If we look back at John's gospel, when John starts it, he reaches back to the oldest poem he knows, and he starts there. The speaking God is back at it again. He's talking to his people. He's recreating. He's calling a new reality into existence. And more importantly, he's solving the problem that had existed since Abraham, the problem of distance between God and his creation. See, if you take it as your working assumption that Yahweh is supposed to dwell in the middle of his people and that any time he's not, that's the problem, you'll see that exile is a deviation from the way it's supposed to be. John says, let me tell you about this creating God. He's the word of God, come to man. But this time isn't like all the others. This God was with God in the beginning. And he was God. He was the God that showed up in all these important moments. He showed up at the burning bush. He showed up at the temple. And he's doing what God always does. Collapsing the distance between God and his people. But even with all of that, even if all of that's true, I think we, we, we have to see, see, that's not enough. God can't just talk to his people by proxy of his prophets. He has to actually dwell with them. That's the final step. These other prophets, Elijah and John the Baptist, as great as they may be, they weren't the, the thing itself. They came only to witness that God would one day dwell among his people. And so John and Christians everywhere have dogmatically asserted that Jesus isn't another prophet. He's not another self-help guru. They've asserted that he's God himself. He's the one who made everything, and that at a particular moment of history, he invaded the land to put everything back to right. A new day has dawned. From the ashes, a fire was woken. A light from the shadow has sprung. See, this has always been the mind-bending fact at the center of Christianity. Israel's best son came home, and nobody at home recognized him. The creator came to the creation, and everybody missed him. But Yahweh wanted a temple in the middle of his people so much that he became the temple himself. See, Jesus says to the, the Pharisees later, destroy this temple and I'll build it up again in three days. He's referring, of course, to his body. He became the temple and the priest. See, this is the, what the world dwells. It's why it's such a big deal for John. It, it shows up in our verse, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, the glory of the Son of the Father of grace and truth. This word dwell, it means to pitch a tent in. And if you've been reading the Bible lessons right, you know about tents. There's been a tent. 
that God has pitched in the middle of his people and that his glory has left. And it's not the last time that John is going to use this word dwell. See, those of you who know the end of the story know that John ends the story in Revelation 21 with these words. See, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, for the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So what does it all mean for us now? What are we supposed to do with this fact that comes up every Christmas that God came to dwell among us? Why does it matter that we rejoice in that fact at Christmas after a long winter of Advent? Uh, see, some of you have worked really hard during this Advent to feel down in your belly the sadness and alienation and brokenness of the world. And for some of you, you've not had to work so hard at that uh, because evil has kicked you around all of 2019. And maybe this Christmas, when you got to Advent, and then you got to Christmas and you're like, joy, 2020 will be better. And Advent just came roaring back in already, four days late. Maybe you went home to dysfunctional families. Maybe you went home to hospital rooms, to sinking ships, and to lost causes. Wherever you are, the bedrock hope of Christianity is that God has come to dwell with his people. And he's come to dwell with you. And that's why the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah is the same word that John says comes to you. God tells Jeremiah, call to me, and, answer, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you don't know. And John picks up on that and he says, to those who did call him his sons, they became sons of God. And they had the right to believe in his name. And see, this is the hope of Christianity. That the things that we can't imagine is that God will finally, one more time, invade humanity and put an end to our exile. This is what Isaiah was talking about in our reading today. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called. My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice again over you. Let's pray.